Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Edmund Moore Hamilton was an American writer of science fiction during the mid-20th century. Born October 21, 1904, in Youngstown, Ohio, he was a prolific author known for his pulp science fiction and space opera stories. Hamilton's professional career as a writer began in the late 1920s. He quickly gained recognition for his space opera works, a subgenre of science fiction that emphasizes melodramatic adventure set mainly or entirely in outer space, usually involving conflict between opponents possessing advanced abilities, futuristic weapons, and other sophisticated technology. In the 1960s, Hamilton turned to writing for comic books, notably for DC Comics, where he wrote stories for characters like Superman and Batman. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 Thrill Cruise Lance Keniston felt the cold realization of failure as he came out of the building into the sharp chill of the Martian night. He stood for a moment, his lean, drawn face haggard in the light of the two hurtling moons. He looked hopelessly across the dark spaceport. It was a large one, for this ancient town of Sirtis was the main port of Mars. The forked light of the flying moon showed many ships docked on the Tarmeki big liner, several freighters, a small, shining cruiser and other small craft. And for lack of one of those ships, his hopes were ruined. A squat, brawny figure in shapeless space jacket came to Keniston's side. It was Hulk or the Jovian who had been waiting for him. What luck, asked the Jovian in a rumbling whisper. It's hopeless, Keniston answered heavily. There isn't a small cruiser to be had at any price. The meteor miners buy up all small ships here. The devil, muttered Hulk or dismayed. What are we going to do? Go onto Earth and get a cruiser there? We can't do that, Keniston answered. You know we've got to get back to that asteroid within two weeks. We've got to get a ship here. Desperation made Keniston's voice taut. His lean, hard face was bleak with knowledge of disastrous failure. The big Jovian scratched his head. In the shifting moon's light, his battered green face expressed ignorant perplexity as he stared across the busy spaceport. That shiny little cruiser there would be just the thing, Hulk or muttered, looking at the gleaming, torpedo-shaped craft nearby. It would hold all the stuff we've got to take, and with robot controls we too could run it. We haven't a chance to get that craft, 
Keniston told him. I found out that it's under charter to a bunch of rich earth youngsters who came out here in it for a pleasure cruise. A girl named Loring, heiress to Loring Radium, is the head of the party. The Jovian swore. Just the ship we need, and a lot of spoiled kids are using it for thrill hunting. Keniston had an idea. It might be, he said slowly, that they're tired of the cruise by this time and would sell us the craft. I think I'll go up to the Terra Hotel and see this Loring girl. Sure, let's try it anyway, Hulk agreed. The Earthman looked at him anxiously. Oughtn't you to keep undercover, Hulk? The Planet Patrol has had your record on file for a long time. If you happen to be recognized, Dash. Bah, they think I'm dead, don't they? Scoffed the Jovian. There's no danger of us getting picked up. Keniston was not so sure, but he was too driven by urgent need to waste time in argument. With the Jovian clumping along beside him, he made his way from the spaceport across the ancient Martian city. The dark streets of Old Sirtis were not crowded. Martians are not a nocturnal people and only a few were abroad in the chill darkness, even they being wrapped in heavy synthwool cloaks from which only their bald red heads and solemn, cadaverous faces protruded. Earthmen were fairly numerous in this main port of the planet. Swaggering space sailors, prosperous looking traders, and rough meteor miners made up the most of them. There were a few tourists gaping at the grotesque old black stone buildings and under a krypton bulb at a corner, two men in the drab uniform of the patrol stood eyeing passers-by sharply. Keniston breathed more easily when he and the Jovian had passed the two officers without challenge. The Terra Hotel stood in a garden at the edge of town, fronting the moonlit immensity of the desert. This glittering glass block especially built to cater to the tourist tray from Earth, was Earth-conditioned inside. Its gravitation, air pressure, and humidity were ingeniously maintained at Earth's standards for the greater comfort of its patrons. Keniston felt oddly oppressed by the warm, soft air inside the resplendent lobby. He had spent so much of his time away from Earth that he had become more or less adapted to thinner, colder atmospheres. Miss Gloria Loring repeated the immaculate young Earthman behind the information desk. His eyes appraised Keniston's shabby space jacket and the hulking green Jovian. I am afraid, Dash. I'm here to see her on important business. By appointment, Keniston snapped. The clerk melted at once. Oh, I see. I believe that Miss Loring's party is now in the bridge. That's our cocktail room top floor. Keniston felt badly out of place, riding up in the magnetic lift with Hulk Or. The other people in the car, Earthmen and women in the shimmering synthesilks of the latest formal dress, stared at him and the Jovian as though wondering how they had ever gained admittance. The lights, silks, and perfumes made Keniston feel even shabbier than he was. All this luxury was a far cry from the heart, 
dangerous life he had led for so long amid the wild asteroids and moons of the outer planets. It was worse up in the glittering cocktail room atop the hotel. The place had glass eye walls and ceiling and was designed to give an impression of the navigating bridge of a spaceship. The orchestra played behind a phony control board of instruments and rocket controls. Meaningless space charts hung on the walls for decoration. It was just a sort of pretentious sham, Keniston thought contemptuously, to appeal to tourists. Some crowd, muttered Hawcore, looking over the tables of richly dressed and jeweled people. His small eyes gleamed. What place to loot? Shut up. Keniston muttered hastily. He asked a waiter for the lowering party and was conducted to a table in a corner. There were a half dozen people at the table, most of them young earthmen and girls. They were drinking pink Martian desert wine, except for one sulky looking youngster who had stuck to earth whiskey. One of the girls turned and looked at Keniston with cool, insolently uninterested gaze when the waiter whispered to her politely. I'm Gloria Loring, she drawled. What did you want to see me about? She was dark and slim and surprisingly young. There were almost childish lines to the bare shoulders revealed by her low golden gown. Her thoroughbred grace and beauty were spoiled for Keniston by the bored look in her clear dark eyes and the faintly disdainful droop of her mouth. The chubby, rosy youth beside her goggled in simulated amazement and terror at the battered green Jovian behind Keniston. He set down his glass with a theatrical gesture of horror. This Martian liquor has got me, he exclaimed. I can see a little green man. Hulk were started wrathfully forward. Why, that young pup dash? Keniston hastily restrained him with a gesture. He turned back to the table. Some of the girls were giggling. Be quiet, Robbie, Gloria Loring was telling the chubby young comedian. She turned her cool gaze back to Keniston. Well? Miss Loring, I heard down at the spaceport that you are the charterer of that small cruiser, the Sunsprite, Keniston explained. I need a craft like that very badly. If you would part with her, I'd be glad to pay almost any price for your charter. The girl looked at him in astonishment. Why in the world should I let you have her cruiser? Keniston said earnestly, your party could travel just as well and a lot more comfortably by liner. And getting a cruiser like that is a life or death business for me right now. I'm not interested in your business, Mr. Keniston, drawled Gloria Loring. And I certainly don't propose to alter our plans just to help a stranger out of his difficulties. Keniston flushed from the cool rebuke. He stood there, suddenly feeling a savage dislike for the whole pampered group of them. Beside that, the girl continued, we chose the cruiser for this trip because we wanted to get off the beaten track of liner routes and see something new. We're going from here out to Jupiter's moons. Keniston perceived that these bored, 
spoiled youngsters were out here hunting for new thrills on the interplanetary frontier. His dislike of them increased. A clean-cut, silver-faced young man who seemed older and more serious than the rest of the party was speaking to the heiress. Unhardened space travelers like us are likely to get hit by gravitation paralysis out in the outer planets, Gloria, he was saying to the heiress. I don't think we ought to go farther out than Mars. Gloria looked at him mockingly. If you're scared, Hugh, why did you leave your nice safe office on Earth and come along with us? The chubby youth called Robbie laughed loudly. We all know why Hugh Murdoch came along. It's not thrills he wants, it's you, Gloria. They were all ignoring Keniston now. He felt that he had been dismissed, but he was desperately reluctant to lose his last hope of getting a ship. Somehow he must get the cruiser. A stratagem occurred to him. If these spoiled scions wouldn't give up their ship, at least he might induce them to go where he wanted. Keniston hesitated. It would mean leading them all into the deadliest kind of peril. But a man's life depended on it. A man who was worth all these rich young wastrels put together. He decided to try it. Miss Loring, if it's thrills your actor, maybe I can furnish them, Keniston said. Maybe we can team up on this. How would you like to go on a voyage after the biggest treasure in the system? Treasure, exclaimed the heiress surprisedly. Where is it? They were all leaning forward with quick interest. Keniston saw that his bait had caught them. You've heard of John Dark, the notorious space pirate? He asked. Gloria nodded. Of course. The Telenus was full of his exploits until the patrol caught and destroyed his ship a few weeks ago. Keniston corrected her. The patrol caught up to John Dark's ship in the asteroid but didn't completely destroy it. They'd done the pirate craft to a wreck in a running fight. But Dark's wrecked ship drifted into a dangerous zone of meteor swarms where they couldn't follow. I remember now that's what the Telenus said, conceded the heiress. But Dark and his crew were undoubtedly killed, they said. John Dark, Keniston went on, looted scores of ships during his career. He amassed a hoard of jewels and precious metals. And he kept it right with him in his ship. That treasure's still in that lost wreck. How do you know? Asked Hugh Murdoch bluntly. Because I found the lost wreck of Dark's ship myself, Keniston answered. He hated to lie like this, but knew that he had no choice. He plunged on. I'm a meteor miner by profession. Two weeks ago my Jovian partner and I were prospecting in the outer asteroid zone in our little rocket. Our air tanks got low and to replenish them, we landed on the asteroid Vesta. That's the big asteroid they call the world with a thousand moons because it's circled by a swarm of hundreds of meteors. It's a weird, jumbled little world inhabited by some very queer forms of life. 
In landing, my partner and I noticed where some great object had crashed down into the jungle. We discovered it was the wreck of John Dark's ship. The wreck had drifted until it crashed on Vesta, almost completely burying itself in the ground. No one was alive on it, of course. Keniston concluded, We knew Dark's treasure must still be in the buried wreck, but it would take machinery and equipment to dig out the wreck. So we came here to Mars, intending to get a small cruiser loaded with the necessary equipment and go back to Vesta and lift the treasure. Only we haven't been able to get a ship of any kind. He leaned toward the girl. Here's my proposition, Miss Loring. You take us and our equipment to Vesta in your cruiser and we'll share the treasure with you 50-50. What do you say? The blonde girl beside Gloria uttered a squeal of excitement. Pirate treasure. Gloria, let's do it what a thrill it would be. The others showed equal excitement. The romance of a treasure hunt in the wild asteroids lured them rather than the possible rewards. We'd certainly be able to take back a wonderful story to Earth if we found John Dark's treasure, admitted Gloria with quick, eager interest. Humor Doc was an exception to the general enthusiasm. He asked Keniston, how do you know the treasure's still in the buried wreck? Because the wreck was still undisturbed Keniston answered. And because we found these jewels on the body of one of John Dark's crew who had been flung clear somehow when the wreck crashed. He held out a half dozen gems he took from his pocket. They were Saturnian moonstones, softly shining white jewels whose brilliance waxed and waned in perfect periodic rhythm. These jewels, Keniston said, must have been that pirate's share of the loot. You can imagine how rich John Dark's own hoard must be. The jewels, worth many thousands, swept away the lingering incredulity of the others as Keniston had known they would. You're sure no one else knows the wreck is there? Gloria asked breathlessly. We kept our find absolutely secret, Keniston told her. But since I can't get a ship any other way, I'm willing to share the hoard with you. If I wait too long, someone else may find the wreck. I accept your proposition, Mr. Keniston. Gloria declared. We'll start for Vesta just as soon as you can get the equipment you'll need loaded on the Sunsprite. Gloria, you're being too hasty, protested Humor Doc. I've heard of this world with a thousand moons. There are stories of queer, unhuman creatures they call Vestans who infest that asteroid. The Danger Dash. Gloria impatiently dismissed his objections. Hugh, if you're going to start worrying about dangers again, you better go back to Earth and safety. Murdoch flushed and was silent. Keniston felt a certain sympathy for the end businessman. He knew. If these others did not, just how real was the alien menace of those strange creatures, the Vestans? 
I'll go right down to the spaceport and see about loading the equipment aboard your cruiser, Keniston told the heiress. You better give me a note to your captain. We ought to be able to start tomorrow. Pirate treasure on unexplored asteroid exulted the enthusiastic Robbie. Hope for the world with a thousand moons. Keniston felt guilty when he and Hulk were left the big hotel. These youngsters, he thought, hadn't the faintest idea of the peril into which he was leading them. They were as ignorant as babies of the dark evil and unearthly danger of the interplanetary frontier. He hardened himself against the qualms of conscience. There was that at stake, he told himself fiercely, against which the safety of a lot of spoiled, rich young people was absolutely nothing. Hulk or was chuckling as they emerged into the chill Martian night. He told Keniston admiringly, that was one of the smoothest jobs of lying I ever heard, that story about finding John Dark's treasure. Take it from me, it was slick. The Jovian guffawed loudly as he added, what would their faces be like if they knew that John Dark and his crew are still living? That it was John Dark himself who sent us here. Be quiet, you idiot, ordered Keniston hastily. Do you want the whole patrol to hear you? Chapter 2 Discovered The sun spread throbbed steadily through the vast, dangerous wilderness of the asteroidal zone. To the eye, the cruiser moved in a black void starred by creeping crumbs of light. In reality, those bright, crawling specks were booming asteroids or whirling meteor swarms rushing in complicated, unchartable orbits and constantly threatening destruction. For three days now, the cruiser had cautiously groped deeper into this most perilous region of the system. Now a bright, tiny disk of white light was shining far ahead like a beckoning beacon. It was the asteroid vest of their goal. Keniston, leaning against the glassite deck wall, somberly eyed the distant asteroid. We'll reach it by tomorrow, he thought. Then what? I suppose John Dark will hold these rich youngsters for ransom. Keniston knew that the pirate leader would instantly see the chance of extorting vast sums by holding this group of wealthy young people as captives. I wish to God I hadn't had to bring them into this, Keniston sweated. But what else could I do? It was the only way I could get back to Vesta with the materials. His mind was going back over the disastrous events since the day three weeks before when the patrol had caught up to John Dark at last. Dark's pirate ship, the Falcon, had been gunned to a helpless wreck. It had, fortunately for the pirates, drifted off into a region of perilous meteor swarms where the patrol cruisers dared not follow. The patrol thought everybody on the pirate ship did anyway, Keniston knew. But John Dark and most of his crew were still alive in the drifting wreck. They had fought the battle wearing space suits and that had saved them. They had clung grimly to the wreck as it drifted on and on until it finally fell into the feeble gravitational pull of Vesta. 
Keniston could still remember those tense hours when the wreck had fallen through the satellite swarm of meteors onto the world with a thousand moons. They had managed to cushion their crash. John Dark, always the most resourceful of men, had managed to jury-rig makeshift rocket tubes that had softened the impact of their fall. But the wrecked Falcon had been marooned there in the weird asteroidal jumble, with the alien, menacing Vestans already gathering around it. The ship would never fly space again until major repairs were made. And they could not be made until quantities of material and equipment were brought. Someone must go for those materials to Mars, the nearest planet. John Dark had superintended construction of a little two-man rocket from parts of the ship. Keniston and Hulk were to go in it. You must be back with that list of equipment and materials within two weeks, Keniston, Dark had emphasized. If we stay cast away here longer than that, either the Vestans will get us or the patrol discover us. The pirate leader had added, the moon jewels I've given you will more than pay for a small cruiser if you can buy one at Mars. If you can't buy one, get one any way you can but get back here quickly. Well, Keniston thought grimly he had got a cruiser in the only way he could. Down in its hold were the barrel plates and spare rocket tubes and new cyclotrons he had loaded aboard at Certus. But he was also bringing back to Vesta with him a bunch of thrill-seeking, rich, young people who believed they were going on a romantic treasure hunt. What would they think of him when they discovered how he had betrayed them? That's Vesta, isn't it? Spoke a girl's eager voice behind him, interrupting his dark thoughts. Keniston turned quickly. It was Gloria Loring, boyish in silken space slacks, her hands thrust into the pockets. There was a naive eagerness in her clear, lovely face as she looked toward the distant asteroid that made her look more like an excited small girl than like the bored, jeweled heiress of that night at Certus. Yes, that's the world with a thousand moons, Keniston nodded. We'll reach it by tomorrow. I've just been up on the bridge, telling your Captain Walls the safest route through the meteor swarms. Her dark eyes studied him curiously. You've been out here on the frontier a long time, haven't you? Twelve years, he told her. That's a long time in the outer planets. Most spacemen don't last that long out here, Rex. Accidents or gravitation paralysis gets them. Gravitation paralysis, she repeated. I've heard of that as a terrible danger to space travelers. But I don't really know what it is. It's the most dreaded danger of all out here, Keniston answered. A paralysis that hits you when you change from very weak to very strong gravities or vice versa too often. It locks all your muscles rigid by numbing the motor nerves. Gloria shivered. That sounds ghastly. It is, Keniston said somberly. I've seen scores of my friends stricken down by it in the years I've sailed the outer system. I didn't know you'd been a space sailor all that time, 
the heiress said wonderingly. I thought you said you were a meteor miner. Keniston woke up to the fact that he had made a bad slip. He hastily covered up. You have to be a good bit of a space sailor to be a meteor miner, Miss Loring. You have to cover a lot of territory. He was thankful that they were interrupted at that moment by some of the others who came along the deck in a lively, chattering group. Robbie Boone was the center of the group. That chubby, clownish young man, heir to the Atomic Power Corporation millions, had garbed himself in what he fondly believed to be a typical spaceman's outfit. His jacket and slacks were a black synthesilk, and he wore a big atom pistol. Aya, pal, he grinned cherubically at Keniston. When does this here cray of ours jet down at Vesta? If you knew how silly you looked, Robbie, said Gloria devastatingly, trying to dress and talk like an old spaceman. You're just jealous, Robbie defied. I look alright, don't I, Keniston? Keniston's lips twitched. You'd certainly create a sensation if you walked into the spaceman's rendezvous in Javopolis. Alice Krim, a featherhead little blonde, eyed Keniston admiringly. You've been to an awful lot of planets, haven't you? She sighed. Turn it off, Alice, said Gloria dryly. Mr. Keniston doesn't flirt. Arthur Lanning, the sulky, handsome youngster who always had a drink in his hand, drawled. Then you've tried him out, Gloria? The heiress' dark eyes snapped, but she was spared a reply by the appearance of Mrs. Milsom. That dumpy, fluttery woman, the nominal chaperone of the group, immediately seized upon Keniston as usual. Mr. Keniston, are you sure this asteroid we're going to is safe? She asked him for the hundredth time. Is there a good hotel there? A good hotel there? Keniston was too astounded to answer for a moment. Into his mind had risen memory of the savage, choking green jumbles of the world with a thousand moons, of the slithering creatures slipping through the fronds, of the rustling presence of the dreaded Vestans who could never quite be seen, of the pirate wreck around which John Dark and half a hundred of the system's most hardened outlaws waited. Of course there's no hotel there, Auntie, Gloria said disgustedly. Can't you understand that this asteroid's almost unexplored? Alcor had come up and the big Jovian had heard. He broke into a booming laugh. A hotel on Vesta. That's a good one. Keniston flashed the big green pirate a warning glance. Robbie Boone was asking him, will there be any good hunting there? Sure there will, Alcor declared. His small eyes gleamed with secret humor. You're going to find lots of adventure there, my lad. When Mrs. Milsom had dragged the others away for the usual afternoon game of Dimension Bridge, the Jovian looked after them, chuckling. This crowd of idiots had not to have ever left Earth. What a surprise they're going to get on Vesta. They're not such a bad bunch, at bottom, 
Keniston said half-heartedly. Just a lot of ignorant kids looking for adventure. Bah, you're falling for the Loring girl, scoffed Hulkor. You better keep your mind on John Dark's orders. Keniston made a warning gesture. Cut it. Here comes Murdoch. Hugh Murdoch came straight along the deck toward them and his sober, clean-cut young face wore a puzzled look as he halted before them. Keniston, there's something about this I can't understand, he declared. Yes? What's that? returned Keniston guardedly. He was very much on the alert. Murdoch was not a heedless, gullible youngster like the others. He was, Keniston had learned, an already important official in the Loring Radium Company. From the chaffing the others gave Murdoch, it was evident that the young businessman had joined the party only because he was in love with Gloria. There was something likable about the dogged devotion of the sober young man. His very obvious determination to protect Gloria's safety and his intelligence made him dangerous in Keniston's eyes. I was down in the hold looking over the equipment you loaded, Hugh Murdoch was saying. You know, the stuff we're to use to dig out the wreck of Dark's ship. And I can't understand it, there's no digging machinery, but simply a lot of cyclotrons, rocket tubes, and spare plates. Keniston smiled to cover the alarm he felt. Don't worry, Murdoch, I loaded just the equipment we'll need. You'll see when we reach Vesta. Murdoch persisted. But I still don't see how that stuff is going to help. It's more like ship repair stores than anything else. Keniston lied hastily. The Sykes are for power supply, and the rocket tubes and plates are to build a heavy-duty power hoist to jack the wreck out of the mud. Alcor and I have got that all figured out. Murdoch frowned as though still unconvinced, but dropped the subject. When he had gone off to join the others, Hulk were clear after him. That fellow's too smart for his own good, muttered the Jovian. He's suspicious. Maybe I'd better see that he meets with an accident. No, let him alone, warned Keniston. If anything happened to him now, the others would want to turn back. And we're almost to Vesta now. But worry remained as a shadow in the back of Keniston's own mind. It still oppressed him hours later when the arbitrary ship's time had brought the night. Sitting down in the luxurious passenger cabin over highballs with the others, he wondered where Hugh Murdoch was. The rest of Gloria's party were all here, listening with fascinated interest to Hulk Orr's colorful yarns of adventures on the wild asteroids. But Murdoch was missing. Keniston wondered worriedly if the fellow was looking over that equipment in the hold again. A young Earth spaceman, one of the Sunsprite's small crew, came into the cabin and approached Keniston. Captain Wall's compliments, sir, and would you come up to the bridge? He'd like your advice about the course again. I'll go with you, Gloria said as Keniston rose. I like it up in the bridge best of any place on the ship. 
As they climbed past the little teleaudio transmitter room, they saw Humor Doc standing in there by the operator. He smiled at Gloria. I've been trying to get some messages through to Earth, but it seems we're almost out of range, he said ruefully. Can't you ever forget business, Hugh? The girl said exasperatedly. You're about as adventurous as a fat radium broker of 50. Keniston, however, felt relieved that Murdoch had apparently forgotten about the oddness of the equipment below. His spirits were lighter when they entered the glassite enclosed bridge. Captain Walls turned from where he stood beside Bray, the chief pilot. The plump, cheerful master touched his cap to Gloria Loring. Sorry to bother you again, Mr. Keniston, he apologized. But we're getting pretty near Vesta, and you know this devilish region of space better than I do. The charts are so vague they're useless. Keniston glanced at the instrument panel with a practiced eye and then squinted at the void ahead. The sun sprite was now throbbing steadily through a starry immensity whose hosts of glittering points of light would have made a bewildering panorama to layman's eyes. They seemed near none of those blazing sparks. Yet every few minutes, Red lights blinked and buzzers sounded on the instrument panel. At each such warning of the meteorometers, the pilot glanced quickly at their direction dials and then touched the rocket throttles to change course slightly. The cruiser was threading away through unseen but highly perilous swarms of rushing meteors and scores of thundering asteroids. Vesta was now a bright, pale green disk like a little moon. It was not directly ahead, but lay well to the left. The cruiser was following an indirect course that had been laid to detour it well around one of the bigger meteor swarms that was spinning rapidly toward Mars. What about it, Mr. Keniston, is it safe to turn toward Vesta now? Captain Walls asked anxiously. The chart doesn't show any more swarms that should be in this region now, by my calculations. Keniston snorted. Charts are all made by planet lovers. There's a small swarm that tags after that big number 480 mess we just detoured around. Let me have the scopes and I'll try to locate it. Using the meteor scopes whose sensitive electromagnetic beams could probe far out through space to be reflected by any matter, Keniston searched carefully. He finally straightened from the task. It's all right, the tag swarm is on the far side of number 480, he reported. It should be safe to blast straight toward Vesta now. The captain's anxiety was only partly assuaged. But when we reach the asteroid, what then? How do we get through the satellite swarm around it? I can pilot you through that, Keniston assured him. There's a periodic break in that swarm due to gravitational perturbations of the spinning meteor moons. I know how to find it. Then I'll wake you up early tomorrow morning before we reach Vesta, vowed Captain Walls. I've no hankering to run that swarm myself. We'll be there in the morning, exclaimed Gloria with eager delight. How long then will it take us to find the pirate wreck? 
Keniston uncomfortably evaded the question. I don't know it shouldn't take long. We can land in the jungle near the wreck. His feeling of guilt was increased by her enthusiastic excitement. If she and the others only knew what the moral was to bring them. He did not feel like facing the rest of them now and lingered on the dark deck when they went back down from the bridge. Gloria remained beside him instead of going onto the cabin. She stood with the starlight from the transparent deck wall falling upon her youthful face as she looked up at him. You are a moody creature, you know, she told Keniston lightly. Sometimes you're almost human then you get all dark and grim again. Keniston grinned despite himself. Her voice came in mock surprise. Why, it can actually smile. I can't believe my eyes. Her clear young face was provocatively close, the faint perfume of her dark hair in his nostrils. He knew that she was deliberately flirting with him, perhaps mostly out of curiosity. She expected him to kiss her, he knew. Damn it, he would kiss her. He did so, half ironically. But the ironic amusement faded out of his mind somehow at the oddly shy contact of her soft lips. Why, you're just a kid, he muttered. A little kid masquerading as a bored, sophisticated young lady. Gloria stiffened with anger. Don't be silly. I've kissed men before. I just wanted to find out what you were really like. Well, what did you find out? Her voice softened. I found out that you're not as grim as you look. I think you're just lonely. The truth of that made Keniston wince. Yes, he was lonely enough, he thought somberly. All his old spacemates, passing one by one. Don't you have anyone? Gloria was asking him wonderingly. No family, except my kid brother Ricky, he answered heavily. And most of my old space partners are either dead or else worse lying in the grip of gravitation paralysis. Memory of those old partners re-established Keniston's wavering resolution. He mustn't let them down. He must go through with delivering this cruiser's cargo to John Dark, no matter what the consequences. He thrust the girl almost roughly from him. It's getting late. You better turn in like the others. But later, in his bunk in the little cabin he shared with Halkor, Keniston found memory of Gloria a barrier to sleep. The shy touch of her lips refused to be forgotten. What would she think of him by tomorrow? He slept, finally. When he awakened, it was to realization that someone had just sharply spoken his name. He knew drowsily it was morning and thought at first that Captain Walls had sent someone to awaken him. Then he stiffened as he saw who had awakened him. It was Hugh Murdoch. The young businessman's sober face was grim now, and he stood in the doorway of the cabin with a heavy atom pistol in his hand. Get up and dress, Keniston. Murdoch said sternly. 
and wake up your fellow pirate, too. If you make a wrong move, I'll kill you both. 